On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll. Hello, welcome to Rock and or Roll. I'm your reluctant host, BJ. And on today's episode, you're going to get to hear an interview I did with guitar player, singer, songwriter, Lee Hart about his very cool, decades-long career in rock and roll. Going back to the 70s with bands like Slowbone and the Roll-Ups, into the 80s with his band Ya Ya, and then he replaced Dave King and Fastway for a couple of albums, and then in the early 90s, He had a couple of really cool solo albums, and then mid-90s there was an album that came out, it was called D-Rocks, the group was called D-Rocks, we talk about that, and about how Lee actually had nothing to do with naming it D-Rocks, but uh, it was just a Lee Hart album, and whoever owned it put it out as D-Rocks, and we talk about that. All All these records, all these bands... Very cool songs, so all the way through the through his whole career, very cool stuff. So, and he's got a great story to tell. So, let's get to it. We're gonna start off with a song by Slowbone, Lee's band from the '70s, called "Get What You're Given," and then we'll go right into the interview I did with Lee Hart. Well, how did it all start for you, music-wise, like uh, when you were young? I'll try and compress it because <laughs> it'll be long. You'll need about six episodes to get yeah. a story. So to compress it, um, I don't know. Yeah, I've, I come from a musical family, but you know, we, when I was a kid, we, there was no uh, money for for music lessons or for instruments. So I just used to mess around on my grandma's piano when I was eight years old didn't have anyone to teach me and I kind of worked out what to do with the piano but I really wanted to play guitar and it's the, the nearest thing I could get because it was free and it was in a, in a living room so right. started out on the piano 
got to the grand old age of 10, 9, 10, told my dad I really wanted a guitar. He went out and bought me a banjo thinking it was a guitar. <laughs> so I had to start my rock career on a banjo, which, you know, wasn't too cool in front of every, you know, the kids that already had the guitars there. So, <laughs> yeah. and it was a five string as well. And, you know, they all of a sudden you got a string missing. And at that time it was kind of hard to explain when I got this by mistake. Yeah. Uh, so it started out on the banjo, <laughs> and eventually, when I got a bit of money uh, through, you know, doing kids, you know, Saturday jobs and things, I managed to save up for my first guitar. Uh, progressed from there, and uh, I think I played my first live show in front of an audience when I was eleven, eleven and a half. Wow. Um, I did. Then I just went on to do so many things. So I, 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 I was primarily a guitarist. In the early days of my career, not really a singer. Uh, and any time I wanted to do anything, I could never find a singer. And I'd end up having to sing because I could never find, you know, the, the right singer. So I had to learn to, to sing whilst playing guitar. And that's where the singing came in. Um, I, c I played in so many bands, I can't bloody remember which one's which. Well, uh, I think the earliest band name I've seen is Turquoise. It was like a psychedelic band, supposedly. Turquoise, oh yeah, Turquoise, yeah, yeah, we were managed by the Rolling Stones Limited, yeah, I remember that, Maddox Street, uh, now I had a couple before that, a band called the Peeping Toms, Okay. I, th I think I was 13 in that, and a band called the Sapphires, when I was 11, uh, but I suppose the first band, yeah, that really had record deal and everything like that, had all the, all the connections, was um, Turquoise, uh, then I went on to a band called, the remnants of that was My Cake, which probably no one's ever heard of, but we, I remember that was the first band that I really toured with, the three-piece band. And we were supporting everyone from Deep Purple to uh, Black Sabbath, you name it, everybody on the circuit. Wow. And then from that and was band... This, was this like late 60s or early 70s? No, that was the 70s. That would have been 70... God, I can't remember giving my age away now. That would be 90, 70-something. <laughs> and then did the rounds with my cake and that progressed into Slowbone eventually with another member making it a four piece. Right. And that was really the first band that made an impact and kind of, I mean, Slowbone were on the scene, you know, I, I managed Paul Diana for quite a lot of years, but bef before I managed him, we, we were, uh, you know, competition to each other because he was in Maiden and I was in Slowbone. Right. And doing the same kind of circuit. So, yeah, that was the, the circuit. Same thing again, you know, I was uh, primarily a hard rock come metal guitarist and uh, kept trying to get singers in. We could never get the right singer, so I'd always end up with the singing duties as well. Uh, so uh, Maiden formed in, what, 75, was it? Or 76? Or was it around about Around about 75, 76, I think. But that wasn't with Paul. That was with uh, a couple of other singers before right. Paul, didn't they? Right. Uh, yeah. And around about that time. Slowbone, you had some singles on major labels in like 74. Were they all in 74? Were there three of them? Do you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I the thing about that band was we, we we had this massive, massive London following and, and a little bit in, in the suburbs as well. But um, we, you know, every time we'd get to, to meet someone that we, that was supposedly going to take us on to better things, they'd always say, you've got to change this and you've got to change that. Now, we were young, we didn't know, but we'd always listen. If they say, well, you've got to look this way or do that, we'd do it. So 
we changed and we did so many different things that we you know we didn't either didn't want to do or we didn't know whether it was the right thing to do but we released record after record and just did everything changed the name round to all different versions of the name just doing what we were told and uh, yeah there, there was a single called um hot california beach where you were called the oh, rough riders <laughs> yeah and I, I won't go in again I, I don't want to name any and shame anyone but i remember yeah we were pretty green uh i suppose that means the same in america isn't it? yeah in, in uh-huh. we were really green we were grass practically yeah <laughs> and i remember we we got so many record deals, but then we got one really big record deal with some big people behind us, and we were in recording our album, or about to be called, but I don't want to use any names, and the person that was producing the album uh, flew his tambourine, his tambourine, on our bill via Concord, because he wanted... He want, wanted it fast in the UK. He <laughs> flew this bloody tambourine. So it's a special tambourine that's been on a lot of hit records. He flew it from America... From, I think from New York to London on Concord, so it'd be there right away. And you know, and I, I didn't know. I was saying, like, "Who's paying for all this?" And they said, "Oh, you are." I said, "But I haven't got any money." I said, but, "Yeah, it's going on your bill." I mean, what do you mean it's going on my bill? I didn't order it. He said, "Yeah, the producer ordered it, and it, it'll be here tomorrow." Well, this fucking excuse my language, you can edit it out. This fucking thing turned up. This fucking old tambourine with no skin on it, and I just said, "How much did that cost?" I said I could have bought one, but, you know, <laughs> I could have bought one and, and survived on the, for the next year on the money it cost to bring the bloody thing here. But, you know, we were so green, we thought, oh, this is what, this is what the big bands do. They fly tambourines around the world. <laughs> so we got this bloody tambourine. And then I, I approached the producer and it was all in good faith because he, he was actually, he actually knew much more than we knew because we were pretty green. And I said to him, you know, I started questioning him about, you know, why are you doing this and why are you doing that? Thinking I was quite clever. And he just, he said something or other to me, like in front of the rest of the band, which is a real put down. How many hit records have you been on? And I said, well, none. In fact, <laughs> I've never made any. I've never been near any. And he said, I've been on loads. And I said, yeah. He said, so, so is this tambourine. <laughs> so I said, right. So what does that mean? He said, so just shut the fuck up until you've been on the like it because we're your tambourine. So, you know, I went, fine. Go ahead and record your tambourine on my record. That was kind of the crux of like, and we, we were just like, we'd go, if they said like, you know, paint your face green and wear short trousers, we'd have done it because we thought, well, this is, you know, these people know better than us. They've had hit records with tambourines. Right. They fly around the world, so let them do it. So that was kind of, you know, we were easy going in, in the in the in, in, in the uh, the early stages, and I was, and then you you know you stopped being quite so green after a while. But so, but uh, even with even with the lucky tambourine, that record wasn't a hit, right? <laughs> <laughs> even, uh, and I see the bill. Uh, you know, we we released this, that, and the other, and we had some big, some high powered people kind of there and then we never see any money uh and at the time you know i was sessioning doing all, loads of sessions people not getting any money for that either and you just thought oh this is what people do they play free sessions for everyone and they they fly tambourines around the world and they do this and you've not you've not got any petrol to put in your car in fact you've probably not got a car most of the time because it's broken down you can't afford to repair it but nonetheless you know we thought well, this is what you do obviously this is how it works but Needless to say, we found out eventually to our own cost that that wasn't how it worked at all, <laughs> along with a lot of other mistakes along the way. 
you know, do, do you it, know which song the tambourine was on? Or I'm not going to say because it would, you know, oh, it would give it away. <laughs> He's pro- we're probably not on the best of terms anyway, but to, I don't <laughs> make it. I don't want to ruin his Christmas, so <laughs> I won't say anything. But let's just say, you know, I'm not using any more bleeding tambourines again. Yeah. That's for sure. It kind of put me off tambourines. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so every time I hear a tambourine, I turn I turn the radio off or the the record. Off. <laughs> so, so uh, but there was loads of escapades like that in the slow burn days because we were just a bunch of guys that were doing it for fun that thought we'd like to get get somewhere. We'd like to and we'll do whatever it takes. You know, if they say chew your arm off, we'd start chewing. Is is this which arm? Yeah. We'd say. Right. You know, so we do what we thought was the right thing because we thought the people that would were, and there were lots of them over a period of time, were guiding us, obviously got to their positions through knowing what they were doing. But then you find out after a while that most of what happens in the music industry is luck. And nobody knows what they're doing until they've actually got there. You know, once they've, you know, they've got to the destination, their journey, then they know. But on the journey, they don't know. It's like that Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid film, you know, when they're, 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 on, they're looking after the money, you know, Paul Newman and... Um, Robert, Robert Redford, Red, yeah. You know, they've got no money, and they're, they're going, on their mules going up the hill, and uh, Robert Redford is all twitchy with the guns and that, and Paul Newman says, you know, going up the hill, we've not collected the money yet, no one's going to rob us. That's, <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of explains it all, you know. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, slow bone went on and on and on, and in the end, I, I just thought, "Fuck, I'm going to be in slow bone. I'll, I'll be 112 years old, and I'll still be in the band." So I, I, I just, but that time I said, "Well, I'm leaving," and the rest of the band said, "We'll come with you." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Shit, I'm sure this isn't the way it's supposed to supposed to be. You know, if I leave, then you keep the band." Well, <laughs> the other guys the band said, "No, we'll come with you." I said, "Well, then." I can't really leave. Fuck, we'll change the name. So we changed the name. So it was the same band with a different name. Right, right. <laughs> so they were saying, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to make, write some new songs. Okay, let's get started. So that was kind of funny as well, because we said, well, maybe this is the way it happens with the bigger bands. Yeah. One person leaves and the rest join him. So, <laughs> you know, we really didn't have a clue. We could play, but we didn't, we didn't know what day it was. You know, we thought the weekend was every day. So um, yeah, there, yeah, there was a there was just a really wide variety of of styles with all the different slow bone songs. Some of them oh, were man. pretty heavy. <laughs> One time we had a guy, again, I don't want to use names, but a guy, he's dead now, but a guy that was very well connected and he turned up to see us and 
I don't know how to tell you this story. It's too much to tell anybody because I don't want to, you know, piss anyone off either. But he turned up and said, "Oh, you know, I can do this and I can do that. I can, I can move the the Earth off its axis for you." We went, "Great. Do we need to use the tambourine? No. Okay, <laughs> we'll do it." So he said, "I can do this, this, and this, but there's just one, one thing." He said, "What's that? Well, you know, you've got to change everything. The way you look, the way you sound, and the way." He said, "Well, then why do you want us? Why don't you get someone that's nice?" Right. That's the case. So then he said, you've got to change this. So we said, all right, yeah, we'll, we'll do anything. It's kind of like, you know, if you keep using the same numbers for the lottery, you won't know if the other numbers have got a chance of winning. So we said, yeah, all right, yeah, we'll do it. So, and that was kind of our way. If someone had said, come and do this, you know, the the uh, shave the, the uh, keyboard player's eyebrows, we'd say, well, will it, will it help? Said, yeah, let's, let's get going, let's do it. We'll do whatever it took. And we did, and that's, hence the changes. Someone had come into rehearsal and said, I've got this great idea. I've just seen this band doing this. Let's try it. We go, okay, great. Let's try it. Right. Without any thought, really. So it was, it was funny, really. So the, the poor old audiences, you know, we had this following. They'd follow us around, and we'd say, oh, we've changed our name. We've all cut our hair, and, you know, we're coming out on dressed up as Coco the Clown or whatever it was. You know, <laughs> say, why are you doing that? Saying, well, that's what they do. That and tambourines are the new thing. <laughs> so we changed a lot yeah we changed a lot and then I that formed into uh, the roll-ups yeah roll-ups did an album which we changed our musical style and we changed the way it changed everything really and then you know I always the problem with me was also I'd always get cold feet once something looked started get, getting good or get, getting somewhere in the later years I tend to think oh it's time to move on <laughs> I've got no idea why either but I'd move on from my own projects or from my own whatever I was doing and just say, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. So right. that, that kind of, uh, you know, manifested itself into, into the roll-ups. And then Lee Hart and the roll-ups on the advice of a management I signed to that were also managing um, Judas Priest and the tourists who then became... Uh, Eurythmics. Right. Eurythmics. And a bunch of other people. So they ch- they wanted to change the Lee Hart and the and the roll ups, and then they said we're going to drop the roll ups, just as the roll ups were getting incredibly popular. So and we want a new band, but then the band wouldn't go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this management company said we've got your keyboard player. I said great, okay. What about the rest of the band? And they said well you'll have to get the other guys in because they won't leave. Well then why did we change the name? So it started away again. Then they said, we're going to put you on tour with Judas Priest. And we, they'd already manufactured us in something totally different. So, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. So in the end, I said, oh, fuck, you know. Okay, then they said, so we're just going to be Lee Hart. Okay, I'll just be me. So I was me. And then I thought, fuck, I don't want to do this anymore. So I decided to leave myself. <laughs> <laughs> we were having like a farewell gig. And um, to cut a long story as short as is possible, there were... Four guys watching me, you know, just watching everything I did throughout the show, and uh, they were dressed kind of glam rocky. You couldn't really not notice them because the way they were dressed, and uh, unlike it was a heavy metal kind of gig, and the guys had all their hair sticking up and makeup and you know the tight leopard skin trousers and everything. And when we come off the road, he said, "Oh, he said there's." Those guys, those guys want to see you. And I said, what do they want? He said, oh, they want to see you about some business. So cut a long story short, I see them and they told me who they were. And they said, we want you to join our band. And I just said, no way. There's no way I can't play that kind of music. And I'm not going to say who they are either. But they said, uh, are you sure? And I said, yeah, yeah, I just can't do that. 
They said, we're going to Japan in two and a half weeks time and then on to Thailand. And I said, okay, I reckon I could do that. So <laughs> I, uh, I turned up to have a jam with them uh, the next week. And they weren't very good, to put it mildly. I'm being kind by saying they weren't very good. So they said, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, you can't play all that well. You look great, but you can't play. I said, and quite frankly, you need another drummer. So they said, all right, give us a week. So I gave them a week and they rang me up and they said, okay, can you come down for another jam with us? Because we've got another drummer. So I said, oh, okay, all right. And we're going to Japan in a week and a half, if you're going to join. Okay, so I turn up this rehearsal room. And when I walk in, they're already playing, and there's two drummers, the original <laughs> one, and another drummer. But I meant you've got to get another drummer. Yeah, it's like, different the other drummer. One good. So now they've got two bad drummers. So it's twice <laughs> as bad as it was. But there's about 10 days to go before Japan, and I just thought, well, I'd never been to Japan. I always wanted to go, and I thought, shit. It's better to go with two bad drummers than not to go at all. <laughs> that was kind of my theory behind it. And they said that, you know, if you join, we'll get the photos done now with da 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 da, da and it'll all be sold out. Great. Okay. Let's do it. I'll teach the drummers to play on the plane. And the next thing I know, I'm in Japan, and yeah, sure enough, the whole tour was sold out. But what they failed to tell me was that there wouldn't be any guys at the shows. It was like five to 8,000 screaming girls every night so <laughs> that was an eye-opener but it opened a lot of doors and you know things kind of moved on from there it kind of made me look at the business in a slightly different way you know you can plan things and all your plans don't work out but if you're in the right place at the right time luck can can see you through sometimes and, you know? and what year was that when you joined the band with two drummers i'm not saying but okay. <laughs> you know, let's put it this way there, there were humans on the planet at the time <laughs> and did, did, did this band go on to be well known well yeah but you're still not going to get it out of me <laughs> you, you can research it but um you know it's, it was um it was after the second world war for sure <laughs> but you know i did that and i got a lot of shit from the from press back home about about it but in all all fairness, it opened up doors that I could never opened at that at that particular moment in my life, and stood me in good stead for, I'd say, oh, the best part of twenty years mm -hmm. to move on to other places. So the doors that it closed were doors that I, were pretty hard to open anyway. But the new doors that it opened were, you know, just a new world to me, and it just made me look at things in a different way. And it it stopped me being quite so green. I started to go a kind of off blue. <laughs> which means you're still green, but you, you understand some of it. So, you know, it was good. Then through that, I got to work with a lot of people, got into production, got to writing for a lot of people. I got approached by a lot of companies in Japan that, had, you know, that had uh, American outlets as well. And they were saying, will you write for us and will you produce and will you engineer and will you play guitar and will you play banjo or, <laughs> you know, whatever. And uh, things then, it was then that things started to take off. I come back to the UK, and within three days of getting back to the UK, I had four record deals. And then, I'd, you know, I wasn't quite so green. So I said, I'll sign all of them, but non-exclusive. And in those days, no one knew what it was, but I'd been told what it meant in Japan. And they all said, yeah. So I had three record companies bringing out three records under three different names. And I thought, Christ, this is, you know, this is working. I didn't expect this. But again, it's that thing of luck, you know. Right having the luck to go to Japan and then meeting 
people out there and people explaining some business to me and then I got myself a Japanese management while I was out there in a Japanese publishing company and then they had outlets in America and Europe and you know I came back you know with a slightly different outlook on things and without saying oh yeah I'll try that I'd say no I won't try that I'll do it this way but I'll let you have it no exclusive or I'll do it as a session or I'll do this and Again, it opened more doors. It kind of really <clears throat> opened up my eyes to the, to the way you are supposed to do things in the music business, apart from the luck element. And uh, here I am. Well, so when you were in Slowbo and there was the pub rock movement going on, like were you were you aware of the whole pub rock thing at the time? I suppose so. But the truth is that every band, whether they want to admit it or not most of the bands played in pubs at some time. I, mean, I, went, I remember I went to see ACDC years ago in right. Fulham in a pub. Right. That was with Bon Scott. Yeah. And I was there, funny enough, I was there with Paul Diano when we were competition and hated each other. But, and everyone else was there watching him. But it was a tiny little pub. And then they played, I think they played after that in Islington. But they were playing. So everyone played the pubs, but you didn't think of it as a, you just thought, well, we play the pubs because this is, this is our bread and butter you know bread and butter sort of thing this is what we do if someone offers you to play on the road you play on the road fortunately they didn't they offered you to play in a pub and that's got a roof so you know and some electricity so that's a bit easier so yeah we were aware of it but you didn't think you were part of it you didn't see it as a movement or anything it was just a just somewhere you played that's, but that was sort of what evolved into the punk scene then a few years later right yeah yeah funny enough I, when i i did it at that time it was really around about the time Towards the end of of Slowburn, I started getting lots of session work for a lot of people, and some of the stuff was good, and some was absolutely terrible. But I remember I did a um, one album for Joan Jett, which was Joan Jett and the Black Hearts. I did the guitars and backing vocals on that, and I did that with two of the guys from Blondie and two of the guys from the Sex Pistols, and we right. all got credit in the album. So that's you know I was I was then in from a heavy metal background, but playing with two guys from Blondie and two guys from the Sex Pistols on you know Joan Jett's album and I was from a heavy metal background so that basically says it all you know, it was it was all everything was ongoing then so to speak yeah um, and and, uh, and like you know when when the your slow bone singles came out in like 74 obviously that's when glam rock was absolutely huge over there and uh, there's the one single oh man that you guys did that's a very glam rock sounding song <laughs>
you know, we had different producers and different engineers and different arrangers and different record companies and different managers. And I got to the point, I can't even tell you half their names. You know, when it gets to like, you've had like 50 different managers and, you know, 60 different producers in the end, you'd say, well, I, I don't know what I was doing. You'd just say, fuck, I, I'm, I, I can't remember most of it, you know. Uh, some say do this and you'd say yeah like I was saying before we stroke I we were always open to try what we were told because we thought this is what you're, sp you're supposed to do the people that are telling you you know they they obviously tell you for a reason so we did a lot of things but we obviously made a lot of mistakes and mm. lived to regret it but yeah so there was a lot of changes but variety is sometimes the spice of life you know if you keep playing the same riff over and over again you'll be the best person playing that riff but you'll miss all the other riffs. So there's there's fours and against, you know. Well, I love that song, Oh Man. I think it's <laughs> great. And it, it fits right in with the whole glam rock thing at the time. It's just as good as most of the other stuff. You know, they call it junk shop glam. Have you heard that term? No, because I, when I think of glam rock, I think of when I was in Japan. Uh, and I think probably about the time that, that I, I was joining Fastway, about 87, when glam rock was kind of a big thing and it, it was kind of creeping into mainstream rock uh, that's what i think of glam rock but now i understand what you mean glam rock being the old bands like royal woods wizard and slade and that, that right, kind of right. you know and I, you know that that was just looked upon as far as i was concerned on musicians as pop but i suppose it, in retrospect it yeah it was glam rock right yeah. so um but you know that, that seems like two lifetimes away as well so three lifetimes away yeah so, so yeah so that's a, a bit of a uh a, a bit of an explanation of what went on up until up until the japan era um and then i was doing so many so many things i can't even remember most of them i bought records out under so many different names i can't some i can remember i suppose i want to remember it some i don't i mean i did for instance, I did bronze records, which was Jerry Bron. Arrest his soul is dead now, but Jerry Bron. Uh, I did a non-exclusive deal with him for a, a, a band called Small Ads. Right. And they were kind of comedy things. It was kind of like a madness thing. Yeah. And we had a couple of minor hits with that. records and then i did some solo records for him i did some solo records for polydor at the same time and i did some solo records for island records and i had them all under different names and after time i couldn't remember what i was doing because it would also starved for so long you know in, in in the initial days you're just starving you know sharing out a beer and a sandwich between you that if someone offered you a bit of money and you could get it no exclusive you just say yeah do it. i'll do it i'll do it now i've got three more lined up right behind you let's do them all 
you know, because you were hungry, not hungry for success, hungry to eat. Right. So, so many records come out. Sometimes people, especially I've just come back from Japan, there was one guy turned up with all this old stuff, and some of it I've never seen, and I was just laughing, saying, how, how the hell did you get hold of all this stuff? <laughs> and some of it, there's a couple that I'm just so embarrassed about, but you've got to laugh, because I just think it was part of growing up. You know, you start, you're a starving musician, and someone says, do this, and you've, got, you've not got the train fare home, and you say, shit, yeah, okay, I'll do it now. Where's your money? So, uh, what can you do? What were was... what were some of the other things you put out around that time of the small ads? Do you remember what were some of the other names you went by? Or well, I did Summers Lee Hart. I remember, which is me. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> I did I did some with Polydor. I did a load of Japanese stuff. I did I did a, uh, some Japanese solo albums. I did some albums in Thailand. I did a couple of number one hits in Thailand in those days with WEA. And this uh, is in the eighties. This is this would be about uh, oh it's hard to remember about nineteen I can't remember. Is this this is before yeah yeah though or this is all before then? Yeah. I mean, one of my old managers recently told me in one way or another, not my albums necessarily. One way or another, I'd, I'd appeared on a, I'd appeared on or been involved in just over 130 albums in my career so it's kind of hard to wow, sometimes yeah. then there were singles there was so many singles i just can't remember them and some of them are sessions i mean i did a lot of stuff with different people well-known bands as well uh, you know and it's, it's hard to rack your brains and keep up with it and i'm not one of these people that's going to collect all of my stuff and you know bring it out to show it to grandchildren because it's just not me so it's like, as I said, I was in Japan the other week, and this guy, a few guys turned up with all this stuff, and I'm like laughing, thinking, how the hell did you get this stuff? I mean, I've never seen it. I didn't even know it was out. Yeah. And they'd, they'd just looked into my background and found this stuff, and I just thought, I didn't, didn't know you could, you could even get copies of this stuff. I didn't know it was even, it was even manufactured. So, you know, yeah. Next well, question. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about the Bridge House scene. Um, yep. So the Roll-Ups played there a lot, right? And Iron Maiden played there a lot, right? Yep. And um, and then the whole mod scene was really big there too, right? Did the Roll-Ups kind of fit in with the mod thing that was going on? What happened was the Roll-Ups decided, I don't know what we decided. We, we kind of we, we managed to bridge a gap between what we were and what we people thought we should become so we found a way of kind of getting in the middle of it all right and we just come off well we just coming off of going on to the management with with the management uh that had uh tourists and judas priest can't remember but you know i remember when they took us on for management they uh they brought us in the office one day to meet a hairdresser and to meet a clothes designer and whatever and i just said oh great and i said well you know what what who are they working for and he said you so uh, me? Us? What do you mean? He said, well, yeah, they're going to get you, knock you into shape. I said, well, you know, I play guitar, actually. You know, I, I, I'm i not a fashion model. <laughs> yeah. You know, so he said, well, the next thing we knew, they'd, it was like, well, these are the girls are going to take you out to buy your clothes, and this guy's going to do this. And that. and we were like, well, this must be what everyone else does. We better do it. Of course, if we do this, things will happen. Right. <laughs> So we did it, you know. But uh, so with the roll-up share, we we kind of found a happy medium. Well, there was the Bridge House thing was a good scene. It was uh, it was part of really the pub rock thing, and the guy that was uh, 
was putting that together, he had his own label, and we did, I think we we did a live live album for him, and then we did a studio album, which we owned, and he put a bit of money into, and uh, but to cut a long story short, what happened was, they, they the Bridge House become Bridge House Records, right. and it was a nice setup, but they wanted, um, they were offered record deals, that really the only way they could get the record deals to take on their catalog was if our band, the Roll Ups, were involved in it. So I've I've come across this a lot of times before uh, in my fastway days as well. It's like you know if you if you let us sign up Roll Ups, we'll take on the rest of your product, which put put us at the, in a difficult situation because you know we were popular and we were the ones that had the material, but we didn't want to sign with the rest of these bands and with the rest of this setup, because, you know, we've made enough mistakes as it was in our career and we didn't want to be tied in with, with something that we weren't sure of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we just said, no, we, you know, we, we can't commit. We can let you release this record or you can do whatever, but you, we can't commit. And then I believe through that, they didn't get their, their record deal or record deals that were offered because we just didn't want to do it. And it kind of left a nasty taste in a few mouths. But, you know, sometimes you've got to do what you got to do. And um, you get one chance and you got to take it. And subsequently, some of those songs that we used for the era that were presented as songs, we used those as demos to go on. And they opened doors that just unbelievable doors. But we wouldn't have opened those doors and I wouldn't have opened those doors had we just committed to Bridge House Records and just said, yeah, take it, we'll sign to you. We, I wouldn't be here today with a career. I wouldn't have had the career I'd had. I'd have still been playing the pubs. Right. So, and a lot of the bands that that were in the pubs then are still in the pubs now. I mean, they just never, you know, they never went on. Or, or a few of them got out and did a few things and they went back to the pubs. So, you know, we were right in our assumption, if you do this, you'll stay here. That was kind of what we said. We had a meeting. We just said, you know, if we, if we get tied in with this, we'll, that's what all we'll ever be. If we want to move on and have a career, we've got to think think a bit different. And for once, we made the right decision that time. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, there was the compilation album on Bridge House that had two roll-up songs on Everybody's Gotta Have a Hero and Handy Shandy. And those two songs yeah. almost sound like they they would have fit in with the new wave of British heavy metal that was happening right Yeah, then. yeah, because we were playing all over. We were playing everywhere we played. There'd be cues down the bloody road from the morning and afternoon onwards and we were kind of giving off that kind of vibe. Right, this is called Everybody's Got an Hero. Just wear another wings away. 
hero Everybody's gotta have a star Everybody's gotta have a dream to dream Son is Taylor, she gave me a big chance It was kind of like, you know, the heavy metal thing was, I mean, Paul had done well with it, Paul Diano with, with Iron, and Iron Maiden, right. the way they were presenting themselves. But generally speaking, a lot of bands were looked upon as, you know, that's yesterday. And so you had to find a way to bridge the gap. So we would we were kind of doing that then as, as the roll-ups, you know, trying to bridge the gap and appeal to a wider audience, really. We were basically trying to keep the audience we had, but appeal to a wider audience. And that wider audience didn't want to just hear hard rock and heavy metal they want to hear something with a slightly different edge to it and that's what we tried to do at that particular period and hence we got incredibly popular and loads of record deal offers but we just happened to bring out some different things with that bridge house set up and it, it just didn't work for us you know them trying to tie us into a record deal we just didn't want to do it you know as i said subsequently we went on with those songs and used them as demos uh, to open doors with record companies and all sorts of things and we all went on for years and all that sort of big success through the songs that we were offering at that period yeah the, the roll-ups album low dives for highballs is more a lot of a lot of people seem to refer to it as power pop yeah um, I, I it, it kind of fits in with power pop and it fits in with mod and some of it's almost fits in with the punk scene and then it, it's kind of foreshadowing what would become new wave um, so yeah, obviously, by the time you made the record, you were kind of looking ahead to see where things were going, maybe. Yeah. Plus, by then, I'd, I'd become I was earning I, I was earning a living out of writing songs for other people, and I'd, I'd started to get wise as to you know what you needed to do to craft a song and how you needed to sell the song. And then one of my main objections outside of playing the guitar was uh, writing and arranging songs that not necessarily for yourself. You know, right. the, yeah. you know that that would survive time. So mm-hmm. it was just as important to me then. It started to be as important to me then to present the songs in such a way that the song will live on when you when you're far, you know, when you, you you're you're long gone. You know, you might be the best guitarist on the planet and playing the best guitar solo, but if you fast forward thirty years, no one will remember the the guitar solo or where you were playing. But a good song will live on forever. Right. And that was really my pretext then. Was well, you know. We've got to do whatever we got to do to make these some of these songs adjustable and, and livable for uh, future music lovers. <laughs> so right, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah.
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? 
Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hence, you know, not wanting to get tied down in, in that that uh, that thing that was going on in, in the pubs and culminating around the bridge house. Although the people that were running it were great people. A guy called Terry Murphy was a lovely, lovely guy and really tried his best uh, to accommodate us amongst the others. But it seemed like we were the, we were the, the band amongst all of them that had four, four, you know, of the four aces, we had three of them. We were holding them and, you know, we weren't about to let them go to let everybody else kind of ride on our on our back, so to speak. And I had a similar thing happen, although I'm not going to say the band because I don't want to get in trouble. A similar thing happened when I was in Fastway, when Fastway got re-signed in America by somebody for a big deal. And we were told, myself and Eddie, we were, we were in America, we were doing promotion in, in America in 1988 uh, oh, or 89, I can't remember now. And our record had just gone in with a bullet, I think, at number 17 in the Billboard Hot 100. And we were told by the record company over here, by the head of the record company, when he was stoned, don't go in and see the record company out there and I don't want you talking to them. So, of course, as soon as we got there, we went into the record company and demanded to see the the top man and wanted to know what our what our deal was and then he said well all of the bands that we've signed from this particular label in in england were all like metal and hardcore bands and a couple of them very well known so they're all signed only on the on on the understanding that we have fastway so was, and we said well why don't we have this money for promotion and why don't we have this and why don't we have that he said because we paid the money for you guys to your record label uh but in order to get you we've had to take their whole catalog of all these other bands does i don't know if that makes sense to you so yeah, we didn't have isn't have that the, the same money. isn't that the same thing you were talking about with the roll-ups the- yeah that's what that's what was going to happen the roll-ups well then right. it happened to me in Fastway. I got a terrible taste of it because we were there with a record that gone straight in at 17. We were hot to trot in a big, big way. But to take the next step would take a lot of money. But all of our money had been sent to the record label in the UK and about six other bands were benefiting from the money that was meant for us to be promoting us. Mm-hmm. So that's why they didn't want us to talk to the record company. Hence, we got well and truly shafted and it really hurt hurt us in a bad way because the money had been taken from us spent these other bands and good luck to those other bands but we got shafted in a big big way and that's what what that's what how we'd seen the roll-ups thing that's how we'd seen it unfold in them earlier days but then in later days i, I got a taste of it you know that i didn't see coming and it, it really did hurt our careers at the time myself and eddie and it really put us back in a big, big way. It kind of made us lose faith in everything, in life and music, business in general, you know. Yeah. So, uh, if that explains, it all probably sounds a bit complicated, but my life's always been complicated as far as the music business is concerned. If it's going to be complicated, it, I'm like a magnet to complicate it. It will come straight to me, you know. So, uh, yeah, I don't know where I was in, in, the, in the, the rainbow of things of like, you know... <laughs> where it was in my career where you and I were talking but that's where we are now sort of thing well well yeah we before Fastway you had the band Yeah Yeah which um well that was that was an enigma in itself because I don't know what I was in before that I I played in so many bands and so many different things going on I, I just get lost but I got to a point I'd say it was 83 84 when I was I, my my hobby then was drinking I was, yeah. I, I think I was, I, I was training to be an Olympic athlete in the drinking section, 
trying to get a gold medal. So I was drinking, and I, I, I was just bored with music business, bored with life, and somehow or other, the only thing that was keeping me together was songwriting. And I had a publishing deal with an American music publisher, and I was writing songs for them. And just for something to do, I decided to try putting a band together, um, really, just to just around these songs that I had that weren't rock songs. They were all sorts of things. I was trying to get other artists to cover these songs. And I just thought I'll put something together, my songs, nothing really serious and nothing too good because I couldn't really afford to pay anybody, you know, to pay good musicians, so I had to get what I could. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really just a hobby as far as a band's concerned while I was trying to push these songs I had and do demos for them. I used to go and do demos and that and just have a few guys around me. In fact, for the demos, mostly I was using all different musicians from all over the show, uh, a host of different musicians. Some of them went on to do big things, some didn't. And then I got this kind of yo-yo thing. It kind of opened up into something it wasn't meant to be. It kind of almost turned into a band. <laughs> I say almost, it did, but I never really considered it to be a band because it was just a mistake. We, we ended up with uh, signing to the, I think, the Scotty Brothers. Yeah. And we had, we had a manager in America and so on and so forth. And I got a publishing deal, a further publishing deal, which was amalgamated with my other then publishing deal. So I was then with Arista for my publishing and Shapiro Bernstein. And all I really wanted to do at the time was just get people to cover my songs. And I was writing all different types of things that weren't suitable for for a rock band, where my roots have been hard, you know, hard rock. Mm-hmm. That's where my roots have always come from. But the songs that I was writing was just to basically just try and get good songs out there and certainly weren't hard rock. So this band had come about and it was really confusing. And I was, you know, trying to beat the world record for drinking. Uh, so... It was, my mind was kind of pretty muddled up. And the next thing I know, we, we were in America. We, 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 we put an album together, which was basically eight demos. It was seven or eight demos that I'd recorded for other people. And all, we, we just, with with the guys in Yaya, we put two songs or maybe three together, I can't remember, from scratch. But the rest were just all my old demos remixed. Okay. And they weren't, even, they weren't even rock songs. So, right. We recorded maybe four songs. I think we might have recorded three. No, three. I think it was t- "Don't Talk." Can't even remember what the other ones were. But was "Dead Lovers" one of them? "Dead Lovers," yeah, that was one. Yeah. Yeah.
there was two, three, I don't know. The majority were these demos that I had, and then we recorded those, and then for somehow or other, that spiralled. Again, it was just one of these things that you wouldn't have expected to happen. That got through the management and the, the, the record company then being the Scotty Brothers. Two of the songs appeared in a film called Revenge of the Nerds. Right. Which was Don't Talk, which was the single, and I think another song called Are You Are Ready? Are You Ready, right. Yeah. And then 20th Century Fox that had that film said they'd pay for us to make a, a video. Right. So here's a band that never played any live shows as a band and making a video with an album out and everything. And really, it was it was heading for disaster right from the start, really. And as I said, I, I wasn't really in a fit state to to be going on the road all I, I i was just more interested in putting songs together in it and, and and you know as i said my my roots have always been hard rock so to to actually go and play that music that i'd written for anyone that wanted to to record it wouldn't have made a lot of sense and then while all this was going on i was probably a bit difficult to to work with due to the amount of alcohol i was consuming you know the we were in America, and they'd pulled out all the stops. The record company they put us at the uh, Sunset Marquee Hotel, which is really expensive, uh, paying for this and paying for that. They got in a producer to redo this, that, and the other, which was abysmal. I won't say who it was, but it was abysmal. The whole scene was abysmal. And I was going out and meeting Lemmy and all my mates and things like that. And then one of the band, one of the Yaya band members, said, "You know, something like, you know, we, you know, if you carry on like this, we'll we'll fire you." because you're too rock and roll for us. We've all got girlfriends and we listen to Mr. Mister. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what the fuck is this all? <laughs> you know, I think I'd said at one point that I'd liked an Ozzy Osbourne record and I think they were ready to throw me to the wolves. So, you know, it was like, what the, what the fuck is this? So, uh, you know, I was then thinking, what do you do? And then the manager said, oh, yeah, they're going to fire you. So I thought, oh, Fuck it, good. The best thing that could have happened to me. They fired me, and I, I went back and uh, had to work out a way of getting out of the deal with Warner Brothers, which took me ages. But had I not been in that position, then I wouldn't have got the Fastway gig, which again come by accident, absolute accident, and opened up doors like I wouldn't have believed, only through the Yaya thing falling apart, which I never meant to be anything in the first place. Right. Uh, kind of weird really because there was a few good things around the Yaya things at that time and I believe they went on to make another album and attempted to tour but you know I don't think apart from one guy in the band they just didn't have the musical credibility or the, or the, um, the material to, to make that go any further than, than that and um, you know it was just through through that happening that I got the, the offer through Jerry, Jerry Bronze son who i'd made records with his son was richard bron of bronze records and he was managing a lot of rock bands and working with a lot of different people including uriah heap and motorhead uh girls school load of bands like that and then i bumped into him in the marquee club and he said what are you doing and i said well i got fired from a band you know i told him the yo-yo story i got fired from the band who had been too rock and roll and drinking too much and not having a girlfriend uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm basically, you know, drinking. And he said, uh, Fast Eddie, he's been trying to get hold of you. He wants you to join Fastway. And when he said that, it conjured up Motorhead. You know, I'm just thinking, because the last time I'd seen Fast Eddie was in Motorhead right. with all the hair and the leather jackets, you know, and the, it, it was great. <laughs> I just thought, oh, I don't think I'm ready for it. I didn't think my body was ready for it. 
and I just said, oh, I don't know really. And he said, well, have a meeting with him. So uh, he set up a meeting. Uh, Eddie invited me out to a restaurant, and I'm sitting in this restaurant, uh, waiting a really posh restaurant, the Jane Mansfield's old uh, dining table. And all of a sudden, in walks this, this male model with longish hair, with all this Armani gear on, and this guy, I remember thinking, wow, that guy looks really good, tan, and they had the right sunglasses and everything. And I'm thinking, you know, this Eddie Clark's really late, expecting this guy with all the hair and the leather jackets. It turns out the male model was Eddie. <laughs> right. He just really got himself together. He looked fantastic, and he came and sat down, and uh, he'd apparently got my my newer, my, a load of my new recordings of demos I'd done. He got them from somewhere or other and loved them. And he just said, listen, I've been listening to all this stuff. I want you to join the band. I want us to, to um, you know, make some music and I want to use some of these songs. And he said, uh, you know, tell me a bit about yourself. And I told him everything that had gone on so far, like I've just told you. And he said, he had a few names for the people I was working with. He said, I've just come, he said he'd just come out of a similar situation of his own band. Right. Where he was drinking and, you know, it, it fell apart around him and da-da-da-da-da. And then he said, I've got a film coming out with um, Ozzy Osbourne's got the soundtrack. It's called Trick or Treat, the film was called. Yep. He said, I've got a film coming out, da-da-da-da-da, and we've got the, the um, soundtrack of, of that. But that's with Dave, the old singer, who's a great singer. He said, but we're tied down to this, that, and the other. He said, you know, we could, we could rewrite and do this and whatever. But... I had a problem then because at that time I had a lot of companies sniffing around me. It, it all gets so complicated, all of this. I had a lot of record companies sniffing around me, but I was still actually tied up to Warner Brothers from the old Yaya deal because we'd transgressed to Warner Brothers music for our publishing and they'd taken on the recording as well, even though I wasn't going to be part of it. But they wouldn't let me out of the contract. So I had to kind of bide my time and pretend not to be in fast way because I was trying to get out of the contract and if they'd got wind I was going to be in fast way they would never have let me go mm-hmm. because of this vast debt that apparently we owed to them and and another company that was interested in me at the time was um, Sony with a guy called oh, I can't remember his name now a guy used to be in Spencer Davis and they were part of the fast way set up and fast way owed them about a million so <laughs> Eddie said, we can't say you're in Fastway either, otherwise, because Fastway were trying to get out of that deal once this film had come out, Trick or Treat. So I had to be in Fastway, but not really be in Fastway, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because of all this stuff going on. Eventually, I got out of the, um, out of all of my deals, got out of all of them, and, and Fastway got out of their deal with CBS after the Trick or Treat film had come out. I mean, I remember going to see Trick or Treat with Eddie and having it go in separately in case anyone see us together. <laughs> because they put one and one together and then I wouldn't get out of the contracts and he'd be tied to his CBS agreement owing some ridiculous amount. I think it was, whatever it was, a million plus. So we said, you know, we'd have to sit tight until we get out of all these and we're, we're, we're clean. We've got no contracts around us, so... That was kind of how the Fastway thing came together. Although, to get in the band Fastway, I had to go through a special audition with Eddie, which uh, I'll never forget. It was kind of, I didn't play an instrument for the audition. And um, I told him the, you know, the story of the yo-yo days and the drinking and everything. And he said, oh, you know, I like a drink myself, which everyone knew Eddie used to like a drink himself. And he said, uh, you know, I've got some people you need to meet and, uh, you know, to make sure you can come in the band. And I, I can't say these people are because I'll get lynched, but I had to go and meet Eddie at a bar in London 
we had to sit down and these guys come in they're bikers that's about all i can tell you they come uh-huh. in and i was a hardened drinker like eddie so drinking was our, our hobby that's what we did every day and they said you know we've heard that about you kind of join fastway and that and da 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 and you know we kind of we're, we've got vested interest in the band so we're going to sit down and see if you can drink <laughs> i spend <laughs> the night drinking with these guys until they said yeah he's passed the audition <laughs> and that's how i got in fastway <laughs> <laughs> i could drink them under the table basically but I, I you know i got through got through the audition and uh joined fastway so so you were ba- you were ba- you were basically in Fastway before the Trick or Treat soundtrack had, e- had even come out. It was just as it was yeah before it came out. I remember that we went. I went with Eddie to the um, the premiere. It was kind of a, sh- a music biz premiere, mm-hmm. and uh, we were sitting there, and you know we had everyone buzzing round us because somebody had got hold of some some demos that we put together. And this was material I'd held back from everybody. I didn't want to commit to any of the other bands because it was I figured it was too good to commit to some of these kind of third-rate bands that I'd been working with. So I didn't want to let them have the good material. So we'd made some demos, and then a certain manager had gone round and started playing this to people and not telling them who it was. So there were people buzzing around, but some people had worked out who it might be. So we, <laughs> so there was a lot of interest, and we couldn't really... Uh, make any business decisions because of the big problem that eddie had with cbs with the the debt that the old fastway owed and mm-hmm. the problem that i had where i was in the process of getting out of my contracts to warner's warner brothers uh, to the debts that some of my old bands or the old band if you can call it a band had so i just had to we had to sit it through uh, we were seeing all this stuff in the press ab- and, uh, about this, that, and the other, and then the film Trick or Treat came out, and I'd been in the band a long while by then, but I couldn't actually tell anybody. It's funny because I, I, it's funny because I remember uh, they had a video. Fastway had a video for After Midnight from that Trick or Treat soundtrack, but that's right. but Dave well, King I, wasn't in the video. They had the no, guy from the movie. <laughs> that's right, because David left, and and right. see at this time as well, uh, Pete Way was in the band as well, but I didn't see Pete. <laughs> Pete, you know, this is a band of, of professional drinkers. <laughs> it was me, Eddie, and Pete White. Pete was in the band, but they had another problem there because uh, Pete got offered the job with, uh, or he thought he got offered the job with um, Ozzy. But yeah. so he said he rang Eddie up and said, I can't do Fastway because Ozzy, I'm going to work with Ozzy. Going right. on the road with him. But somehow or other, some communication lines have broken down in, in the midst of a few bottles of Jack Daniels. And so we set about carrying on without pete and then pete came back to eddie and said oh i don't have the job with ozzy and we said well we've already started now we you know this machine's already rolling rolling without you so you know we didn't have pete in the band (laughs) you know we'd love to but we couldn't because we've already put things in place by then and we had like a mirror of all sorts of uh business uh, shenanigans going on around us like you wouldn't believe you just wouldn't believe what was going on which which eventually which subsequently you know f- came to the head in when we were in america with the on target album as i just previously said to you when we found out that the record company had sent all of our money to the record company in the uk to support all of the other bands right. our knowledge so right. you live and you learn and at that time to make ends meet i was doing sessions i was doing Sessions for uh, Foreigner, Bad Company, Giant, Tommy Shaw, uh, you name it, I- I'd work for anyone. So I was in the studio at 
non-stop working for every, practically every major band you can think of, mostly backing vocals, uh, just to keep the wall from the door because I, hadn't, I, I was tied to other contracts while getting into new contracts. And you don't get the money till you sign the new ones. So. And you did the two albums with Fastway, and obviously you did most of the songwriting on those records, right? Well, the deal was, in fairness to Eddie, you know, business is business. It's kind of like the old mafia thing, you know, you get a share if you're in it. And I had those songs. I mean, I'd held back some. But every time I'm in a project and I see that it's not going to be going where I want it to go, I'll always hold back the best stuff. And I, I'd always do that. Someone taught me that years ago. So I'd always keep the best to last. So no one ever got to, to hear it or see it or know anything about it. So, you know, when I uh, got in Fastway, I, I had all this, this, uh, this material all sitting there. That, that was that was solely mine and some of it I'd co-written with other people so Eddie had, had uh, you know taken me a few runs up the ladder and he, Eddie was good to me as well let, let me say and therefore and only fairly so although I wrote the songs of course I wrote the songs and Eddie didn't write them but I gave him a name check and the same percentage that I got for the rest of his life Wow. Now, mm -hmm. it may not mean a lot, but it means a lot if one of those songs takes off somewhere. So you get your share of the, of the material in perpetuity. Perpetuity means your lifetime or 75 years. Yeah. It's 100 years now. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I could have stuck to my guns and said, no, they're my songs and it's my name. But you say, listen, without him opening some of those doors, I'd have had to gone in through the windows, which were a lot higher up the building, you know. So it was like, uh, okay, you know. The share the songs that share the share the money and whatever else you know although i've got a very funny story and i mean it in the nicest possible way because eddie said to me yeah yeah we'll shit you know we, we've got all this equipment all the fast way touring equipment was in a warehouse and so we'd gone down to see it and there was all these stacks and stacks of equipment and stuff like that and there was a band car and all that stuff and and um one day Eddie said, oh, we've got, you know, a bit of short cash. We've got to sell some of the band equipment, which turned out to be all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, do, do you know anyone? I said, yeah, I'm a, I've got some friends in a band called the Choir Boys who were just kind of getting ready to take off then before they met um, Sharon Osborne as their manager. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, maybe they're, they're going to be doing Top of the Pops soon. They could do with some stuff. So he ended up sending them most of the back line, and two of them were good friends <laughs> And then I said, oh, how much did we make, Ed? Oh, we didn't make anything. Oh, what was that? He's, well, I, I had debts to pay. <laughs> it was like, oh, right. Oh, I thought they were, it was, the, it was our equipment. Well, yeah, it is our equipment, but I sold them. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, you know, you're giving your take. But I, Eddie, as I said again, um, he opened some, some, some very tight doors for me. So, uh if if he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have opened them until a bit later. I'm sure I would have opened them, but it would have just taken me a bit a bit uh, longer to scale the walls uh, to get in through the windows. So um, yeah, you know I did write the songs and I produced the albums as well. And the same thing again, I gave Eddie a credit for the production. Production mm -hmm. was my thing, and writing the songs was my thing, and sessioning was my thing, whether it's was guitar or vocals or whatever. But it was only right that Eddie should get it because Fastway was Eddie's baby, still is, mm -hmm. and. Uh, we did the two albums, and then some years later, I think it, it got to Eddie a bit that he'd not done what he, he wanted to have done on those albums. And he said, Look, I'm going to go in and uh, do a reworked version 
of those two albums, called it Reworked. Would you come in and sing in it for me? I said, yeah, of course I would. So he brought out a third version of one of the albums with, I think, a bit of one of the, the second album in there with it uh, to do it the way he wanted to do it, and which was only right. And, you know, I reciprocated by saying, yeah, you know, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. So there was really three albums with Fastway. Right. <laughs> so um, good days. But, a lot, you know, some daisy days, if you know what I mean, in as much as um, we were by now, we were both, you know, professional, hardened drinkers. You know, you couldn't get people in bands like that. You didn't get two in a band. You'd always get one, but you got two in a band. So it was it was kind of hard getting things together sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of fun was had. And uh, some of the craziest things in my life happened while I was in fast ways you know things i couldn't even repeat and could write a few books about but uh, also at that time because i'd done a lot of sessions as well i was producing a lot of albums for other people and flying around the world doing different things with amalgamation of different musicians and things uh being commissioned by different different companies different record companies in different countries to do this album that album so i was making income out of uh, out of producing albums and or writing or arranging and tv adverts and anything else you name it so uh you know it was a very very busy period for me and a really fruitful period as well uh which subsequently uh, then went on to me releasing some more solo albums off the back of that because even in the fast way stuff and i was in fast way i've always had this thing of hold back your songs and i'd, I'd hold back even more songs that i didn't want to give to fast way because i thought well these are too good for fast way <laughs> so i held the whole trapped album i had that with a guy that I co-wrote, had a co-writer with me. We wrote that before I even joined Fastway, but I just didn't want to play it to Fastway because I thought I'm going to need these somewhere along the line. And then when Trapped came out, I had another three albums that were written and put by that I didn't want to put into the Trapped format, even though it was only me as a solo act. Right. Because I thought, you know, this is too good for Trapped. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it's kind of it's kind of like Squirrel, you know, hiding back some nuts for... You know, for uh, supper time, around lunch hour. (laughs) (laughs) And and the Trapped came out in what, like 91, I think? Yeah, by by the time Trapped came out, I I was really unsure about the music business. Again, I I think I'm probably going on too long and talking too much, but... No, no. I I realised at the end of Fastway, I realised in 1990 that it was all over basically you know unless you were in a first division band or about to take off in a first division band the kind of genre of music that i was trying to be in and project and be part of i realized that it was over it was you know there'd still be dinosaurs on the planet but there'd be in much fewer numbers that's the way i was looking at it like the old black and white tv mm-hmm. you just uh I'd met a guy that that was a manager of mine in Japan and he was telling me the shape of things to come and I was just like, well, if this is what's going to come. I mean, he was telling me this in 1989 about downloads and everything and I just thought, shit, if the Japanese know this now, we're doomed. So when I'd made Trapped, it was almost like a swan song of sorts in as much as I'd then decided that within the next couple of years... you know, my performing days would be over because it, there wouldn't be any point unless something took off, you know, to such a degree that, you know, I was I was in the first division and, and, I, and I wasn't and I didn't get to the first division. You know, when I say first division, that's comparable to 
British sports football when we, we have the first, second, third, fourth, fifth divisions. You know, I always consider myself to be in the bottom end of the second division. So um, that's that's the way I was looking at it. And so I did that really for myself. And it sounds insane, but I, I didn't want to sign it to a big label and have all the hoo-ha and go on the road because my mind had been turned as to what was what future lied ahead for me and others with respect to the music industry and performing live, you know, albums and so on. I just thought, I'll just give it to a little little label and it's just for me and then maybe I can, some of the songs on there, people will cover them in the future and that'll be part of my pension. That's the way I was thinking. So right. I turned down some big lucrative offers to go with a small unheard of label so that I could control it and I wouldn't have to do what I was told and go on the road and do this and do that. I just thought that's not what, what I'm doing anymore. Mm-hmm. So whether I did the right thing or not, I don't know. <laughs> it obviously held the record back, but that's that's what I wanted and that's what I got. Well, Trapped is a great record, so... Yeah, it's kind of like an underground record. I, a lot of people have compared it to the Hughes Thrall album uh, in as much as, you know, a lot of people got copies of it and liked it, but it, it didn't get where it should have got. But I've just told you the story for that, so that was kind of thinking behind it, you know. Yeah. Well, so, and it uh, really just follows in line with the fat with the Fastway albums. I mean, I was saying yeah, yeah, and you, you were calling that band yeah, yeah, so <laughs> I would guess I've been yeah. mispronouncing it, but... I mean, if you look at the hard, at least the hard rock songs on that, like "Don't Talk" and "Dead Lovers," then the you know "On Target" sounds just like what you might have done as the second "Ya yeah, Ya" yeah album, really. Yeah. Especially yeah, like was- Two Hearts" and "These Dreams."
I mean, you can really tell that those are Lee Hart songs, you know, when you hear them. Yeah, because, well, I was formatting everything while I was in those bands. I was already formatting ahead, like I always do, but I just wouldn't, you know, I didn't see Yar Yar as a, uh, as a career. I didn't see it as a band that was going to last more than 18. I didn't see it as a band, but I didn't see it as anything that anyone would remember. It was, just, for me, originally, it was just a, a vehicle for my for songs that I didn't, I wasn't going to record myself apart from the ones that we recorded as a band, if you like, you know, the three, the two or three songs, I can't remember how many it was. So I'd already had the, the nucleus of the fast way already back then, you know, I already knew where I was going, I already had bits of tracked back then. I, I was all, all, always working, planning ahead, so yeah, I suppose, in, and in retrospect, that's why some parts would make make you listen to, you know, the, the tail end of that band into Fastway and see that the, the songs are coming from the same person or the same area sort of thing. Right. And then, uh, you know, on Bad Bad Girls, there's songs like Body Rock and Miles Away that are very much this in the sim- similar style. Well, um, Body Rock, Miles Away, I actually wrote them be- 10 years before that came out. <laughs> right. I wrote them 10 years ago. I've actually got the publishing agreements that I signed to Shapiro Bernstein. And uh, I think I signed, for instance, She Won't Rock. I signed that in 1980 to Shapiro Bernstein. Wow. 1980. Wow, yeah. Uh, Body Rock, that was written in sticking by my guns in as much as you know some of that stuff was was around the uh, the era of the yo-yo thing and, and and whatever and there was other stuff as well but i've always worked ahead and always kept myself to myself and hidden away what i think will once one door closes open another door right it's, you know i'm not the only person to do it i know other people that do it as well but um you know you've you, sometimes in this business you don't know where your next meal is coming from and you've got to kind of plan ahead and also, sometimes this business, you do things you don't want to do, whether it's working with people you're not really sure of, and you, but you're in that situation there and then, and you've got to think of, well, okay, you know, a year or two or three from now, I'll be in another situation, and I need to be ready, so I'll, I'll be semi-ready, if not fully ready now. And that's, that's where the planning comes in. You know, you can act the drunk while you're, uh, you're really the, the sharp businessman underneath it, <laughs> if you get what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this, and then after Trapped, you did. Is it called Ready to Rumble? And yeah, yeah so I did Ready to Rumble. And then I, I did Ready to Rumble, and another, another one which I put out another name called D Rocks, which was a terrible sleeve, I don't know. But that was called Smart Bombs. So they come out about the same time, Ready to Rumble, and Smart Bombs. But you wouldn't know because 
one didn't come out as me, it came out as D-Rocks. D-Rocks, And right. I've got no idea why. So that they both come out together, I think, about two weeks apart. You mean... Like, two, two so you didn't choose to call it D-Rocks, do you mean, or...? I don't know who chose to call it D-Rocks. Really? Again, so... Some, <laughs> somebody said, oh, you've got a picture taken with these people, and I had a picture taken, and then that went on the cover with two girls and two guys, and they, the guys were about... I suppose they must be six and a half foot. They're about six inches taller than me, and two blonde girls. And then it, next time I see it was on the cover of this album, and I just thought, what the fuck is going on? So you mean you signed a record deal as Lee Hart, and then they put out a record and called it D-Rocks? Something like that. <laughs> Some of it's crazy cloudy. when stuff like that happens. Yeah. You know, you're, you're younger, and you're working. I was working my ass off doing different things. You're drinking, you know, you're doing other things as well, and it's hard to keep up with it all, because when the work's there, you got to do it. And I've had, you know, I've had some points in my career where I've had like five, six records out at the same time in one month, and couldn't work out how they'd all come out. So, yeah, I remember they both come out, and I think there was something else out at the same time, and a couple of singles as well. So, wow. it gets confusing. Oh, and they'd, they'd brought out, I think D-Rocks had brought out a single as well, with a with a remix single as well which was play that funky music and something else i think i mean i don't know i get confused sometimes um so were the songs that were on d-rocks like um the fool you've left behind turn our backs way do any of those date back to like the 80s like when you were saying body rock is from and stuff some of those date back to before then the mid 70s wow. <laughs> yeah if you always have a little bit of something in your suitcase you know that suntan lotion you have a bit more of it because the sun might be a bit stronger the next day and you might run out you, you always need a little bit in reserve and i always worked on that principle you've got to have something else there or more moreover a lot more in reserve but um yeah it, it's every bit of cloth gets used somewhere along the line hence you know I've been on all, so many records and had so many records out because I'd always thought that way and I didn't think myself as a guitarist or a singer or as a producer or a songwriter or an arranger. I just, uh, you know, as far as the songs are concerned, they, they were your, pass, your passport. You know, they, they were what you were selling. You know, a lot of people will, will, will turn out to be a better guitarist than you or a better singer, but if you've got the songs, they will last. Right. And they'll get you out of dodge. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you can sell them and get the fare out of Dodge at least. So, uh, yeah. So, 
that's the story of that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I think Ready to Rumble, and uh, then I had the Christmas album out. There's a Christmas album, which has come out in different formats, in different countries all over the world. Uh, right. oh, Jesus Christ, I mean, I can't keep up with it. Nine formats. Uh, the Christmas album and that's got me on it and Eddie and Denny Lane you know used to be in um, Moody Blues and uh, Paul McCartney's Wings it's uh-huh. got uh, Guy from the Choir Boys it's got Steve Overland of FM it's got uh, Kim McAuliffe of Girl School it's got you know Tim Carter of Saxon so that came out but it was about that time then I then I I'd already made up my mind that performing was over. I'd put, I'd, I did put another band together, which I just remembered, I'd forgotten about, which was with Clive Burr, the drummer of um, Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. We put a band together called True Brits. Right. We, and we went to Russia to play one show, which... Jesus Christ, that's like... I, I'd nearly forgotten all about that. And we, we made an album, we had a lot of guests on it and things, but it would take me too long to explain about that. But that album came out in Japan on Jimco Records. Yeah, I true- just see... That has some different singers on different songs, right? Yeah, and then different companies brought out different versions. And the last I heard, there were 14 different labels with three different volumes. And <laughs> I can't keep up with it. So I really don't know. There was other things like Iron Men came out. and I, I, It's just hard to remember because you do things and sometimes you assign something to someone and then they own the copyright then. They can re-release it as many times as they want in any format they want, with any name they want, with any artwork they want. It's hard to tell that to you know, the guitar player that played the session on it three years ago and got his money. And then he says, this album's come out and he doesn't understand about business like I didn't when I was starting out. And you say, look, I don't own this. Right. You know, Mr. Mr. B from Company C owns this, and if you've got a beef, you've got to go and see him. But you, you've already spent the money, so you don't have a beef. You sign the contract, but it's it's difficult, you know, uh, to to control things. I mean, uh, 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 as I said, then I'd get all these albums, including the two solo albums, and I'd more or less made up my mind I didn't want to perform anymore. And then, without going into detail, I'd. Uh, pretty bad accident where I'd, I'd um, broken my hand and my wrist and my arm. My right, I'm right-handed and I broke them in a big way. I had to have my, my hand rebuilt and, and pinned back together again. And that really was the end of my playing days. I mean, I could still pick up a guitar and play it, but being able to go on stage, whether I wanted to or not, and play after having your, your arm and your hand rebuilt was going to be a tall order. Right. So that also put pay to a lot of things. And out of the blue... Apart from out of the blue getting lots and lots of production work for about 10 years, a guy, an old friend of mine that had come to Russia with me with the True Bits thing as our head of security was running a, a load of uh, nightclubs in London's West End. And um, he said, I'm re- he's an ex-flying squad police officer, which is drugs police officer. And he was running all these clubs and we were good friends. He'd come to Russia with me and Clive and he said, look, you know, I'm getting out of the club business uh, and there's two clubs in the West End, you know, he didn't own the clubs, he was promoting them. He said, the, I'd like you to, to run them. And I said, I don't know the first thing about running clubs, so I haven't got a clue. And he said, well, give it a go. You'll earn money and it's a, it's a different world. So I ended up running, I think, five nightclubs in London for a total of about 10 years while I was still doing things in music, mostly producing, mm-hmm. uh, which subsequently led to managing as well. And... Yeah, and, and you managed Paul Miano. 
Paul Giano, yeah, and then I ended up working with other people and doing different things and booking festivals across Eastern Europe. I, I had a partner, a Polish partner, that was that was uh, trying to get acts into Eastern Europe. And in those days, at that, that particular time, it was very difficult because I had the contacts through music, you know, through my music career, I could get to people he couldn't get to and twist their arm, you know, and say, will you come and do this festival? Will you do this? Will you do that? And subsequently, I helped him to get MTV into Russia and Poland and things like that. And again, it opened up different doors for me where I could also sell my product as well. So, um, but, but it wasn't something I planned. Like most of these things, I just, it was just luck being in the right place at the right time and ending up being a club promoter. Didn't, you know, just through being in the building at the time when this guy happened to be there, he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> right. So that was kind of weird as well. All said and done, the strange thing is now, I've just, just come back from Japan and seen some fans out there who've got different records and things like that, and then it brings it back to you that you think, Jesus Christ, all these records and all these different things and things I didn't know about and things I did know about, you think it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's, yeah. it's more than a lifetime of music. And hard to scratch your head and work out where it all came from, um, and then re the realization that a lot a lot of stuff can now be downloaded from different websites or from iTunes or whatever, and they're all under different names, uh, different names in different formats, and you can't kind of get your head around it all. Really, it's um, everything's changed so very much from when I started out with my banjo. <laughs> it sure has. Yeah. My five string banjo. And I forgot to say I have four strings on it because one broke in the process. <laughs> a dad put to me for Christmas. So, uh, yeah, things have changed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I've more or less quit the management now and everything else. Why figure what I'm going to do next? I'm, I mean, I might just go fishing. I don't know. But um, as I said earlier, I'm, things have changed to s such a degree. There comes a point. Unless you're really at the top of your game, unless you're Iron Maiden or ACDC or the Rolling Stones, where you got to say, you know, you you got a creaky back and creaky knees, and uh, you know the the guys that used to come and watch you play now are granddads, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, you know where I'm coming from, you know, with bald heads and big bellies, and <laughs> those those chicks that used to come and line up down the front and wait around the stage doors, well, you know, some of them are in Zimmer frames. <laughs> <laughs> all right that's a bit over the top but you know what i mean so you say well every dog has their day and you, you got to uh make way for fresh blood and uh you know you, you can only look back on it with fondness so to speak yeah yeah you definitely should i mean you have a great catalog of work that you did in your career um, yeah I yeah, you should be really proud of, so hopefully you are. Yeah, yeah, I am, I am proud, and most of the time it makes me laugh because I just think, you know, I always, a lot of things, most of the things that I've done, I've just done, just gone and done it without thinking too much, apart from holding back the, you know, the uh, the material for the next the next venture. Right. <laughs> Sometimes think, what if? And I mean that in, in a good way and a bad way, but yeah, I've enjoyed, enjoyed nearly all of it. Nearly all of it I've enjoyed, and there's a lot of names and things I've left out, but, you know, you can't get them all in, and some I don't want to get in, and there's a few things I don't want to remember along the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, I've been, been pretty fortunate, really.
Okay, so that song we just heard was The Only One from Lee's 1991 album Trapped. Uh, That's a great record if you want to try to seek it out. It's out of print. Um, I don't think it's on iTunes or anything, but really good album. And Lee requested that I play that song, The Only One, on the podcast. Really good stuff. I hope you enjoyed that. That was a great, great talk that I had with Lee Hart. What a nice guy and what a great story and... As you could tell from listening to the show, what a great catalog of rock songs over the course of his career. Um, there's so much more out there. All those records are, are great. The Roll Ups album, Low Dives for Highballs is great. I love the Ya Ya album called Scarred. And uh, the Fastway records on Target and Bad Bad Girls that he was on. And then um, his two solo albums, Trapped and Ready to Rumble. And the D-Rocks record called Smart Bombs is, is really great. So I really hope you enjoyed this, and we'll go looking for some of Lee's music, because it's really quality stuff. And now, to play us out. What does that mean, to play us out? I don't know what that means, to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. There are just so many songs that I could play for you here, but I've got to play you another song from that Roll Ups record that came out in 1979. Uh, You heard a song, the first song on the album earlier in the show song called Blackmail. This is another great song from that album Low Dives for Highballs by the Roll-Ups. This is a song called It's Up to You. Until next time.
be back. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.